Thank you for joining me on this week's Homeowners Be Aware podcast. Here's an important question for you to answer. Do you understand all the flood risks where you are living or where you're thinking of buying or renting a home? If you answered yes, pay attention to this episode because you'll realize there's a bunch of things you probably never considered. If your answer was no, you really need to listen because you are probably risking your biggest investment and the lives of you and your family. My guest today is Rebecca Jones. She's the owner of EcoAdapt Strategies, LLC. She's going to share flooding information that every homeowner needs to be aware of. I'm George Siegel, and this is Homeowners Be Aware, the podcast that teaches you everything you need to know about being a homeowner. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, George. I'm glad to be here. Thank yeah, I'm glad we're able to finally connect. We met at the uh, New Jersey Association of Floodplain Managers. We ha- we had a great conversation, and you said a lot of stuff that opened my eyes because you know I was fascinated to hear the stuff you were talking about. So tell us about your expertise in the area of flooding, and then I want to talk about what what homeowners should learn from this. Okay, I worked for years for the Department of Environmental Protection in New Jersey, and I have my own business now. Um, but I'm still working with um, New Jersey Association of Floodplain Management on a regular basis. Um, once you get into this flood thing, it's very hard to extract yourself, as you know. So I took an interest in flood disclosure. I feel like there's some things missing um, from state to flood disclosure, and, and there are things that people should be aware of. Yeah, and, and sadly, most people are not until it's too late. I know here in Florida, I've, I've mentioned this many times, the seller is not required to tell the buyer that uh, the house is flooded before. When you look at the country as a whole, do most people have to disclose it or it's just every every jurisdiction is different? Well, they're, they're getting more and more states are putting it in place, but the quality of what they put in place is, is very subjective. Um, they're not telling anybody about substantial damage and improvement law, um, which I find sad. Um, they're not uh, they're not making real penalties for for uh, the owners to disclose. Um, they're they're owners that don't know anything about flood history. They know it might have flooded, but then they don't really give complete information, so they have plausible de- deniability. So there's a lot. Um, there's a lot of good that comes of it, but there's not a lot of teeth and there's nothing that gives you the actual NFIP flood insurance quote because FEMA will not let a regular person get flood insurance quotes. Yeah. It it seems like the odds are stacked against the individual who's buying a house from the very beginning because you're already taking a risk. You're making a big investment. You're relying on other people helping you out. And it really, if we can educate the person buying the house to ask more questions and do more due diligence, we can probably save a lot of people grief. I would say now what I would recommend to people, if you're buying a house, make your offer conditional on that owner getting the NFIP insurance quote, because that will tell you whether it's been repetitively law, you know, repetitive law structure, because it's going to be a higher rate than most. Yeah. Also, everybody should automatically, if you ask them, then it's a whole different ballgame if they don't tell you. They they don't have to tell you. But if you specifically ask in your offer, then then at least you're establishing a a trail that's a record that you that you wanted to find out that information. Yeah, I would ask them for that. I would ask them if they're paying a policy right now 
And then there's such a thing called a, a glide path that was put in place so that, you know, your policy will only go up 18% a year until it hits its full risk rate maximum. So if you ask them about it, then you can um, maybe transfer over the policy and stay on that glide path and the rate won't go up quite as high as fast. But if you just buy it and you don't ask to transfer the policy, it goes up to the full risk rate level. So you're, you're paying more money out um, immediately. Yeah, I would ask a million questions until they told me to shut up just because of because <laughs> uh, of past experience. Now, the, the first thing on your list of stuff, because you gave me some great, uh, great things. If we discussed all this, this would be a three hour podcast. But you got to know your flood zone, don't you? Definitely. Definitely. Um, that's that's a requirement of most disclosure laws are going to tell you whether you're in an A or a Z. Uh, I mean, an A or a V zone. Um, so you're going to find that out from that. But that doesn't really tell you a whole lot. Because the maps are based on a rainfall amount from maybe 30 years ago. Yeah. So even people who think they're in an area that never floods, surprise, surprise, you know, they built a town, you know, a couple miles away. Now, where's all that water going? And it ends up right in uh, right in your yard. So how do you find out if, if, it, if the flood maps are bad and I'm already at a disadvantage because somebody's going to not tell me something? How do I really determine the flood zone? Well, you can go on FEMA's website, look at the National Flood Hazard Layer, and it will give you, you punch in your address and it'll tell you whether you're in or out of a 100-year or a 500-year flood zone um, with their latest mapping that they've done. And, and, and then to take it a step further, it's, it's crucial to know the flood history. So they may have that map. But but I encourage people walk around the neighborhood, talk to people that live there, find out what happens when they have a big rain, at least get a sense of what goes on. Because we've found houses when we were looking to, uh, to buy a house where the water previously had come up to the front door. Our realtor didn't tell us that we had to find out from somebody walking by the house. Yeah, how deep it is, is not a factor of these flood maps that FEMA puts out. Um, they also don't tell you, like my sister lives in Florida. They don't they don't say anything about, uh, hey, down the street from you is a pump station. And if the pump station goes out, you're probably going to have more water than you would ever know you'd have. Now, one of the other things on here that caught my caught my eye really early on was um, understanding early in the process whether you'd be required to carry flood insurance as condition of your mortgage. A lot of people are cash buyers now, so, you know, so if they're buying a house with cash and nobody requires that, you still want to have coverage, don't you? I mean, you're you're betting it all that nothing bad's going to happen. Definitely want to have coverage. Um, you aren't going to know that you're in a mandatory purchase area, but if you know your flood zone and you're in a hundred year, you're in a mandatory purchase area. Um, you should look at different types of policies. Having some insurance, even private insurance is better than having no insurance at all. Um, so there's different types of insurances. I'd, I'd encourage you to get somebody on that talks specifically about, about how that works. But um, yeah, you are all in. And the other thing, if you're a buyer and you're buying a property and you know you're going to close in 30 days, apply for your insurance 30 days before you're going to close because there, with the NFIP insurance, um, what they didn't want was people not carrying insurance until they knew it was going to flood and then buying a policy. So they have a 30 day freeze out period. So if you have a hurricane that comes within the first day, 30 days of owning the property and you didn't ask for your insurance 
so that it'd be in effect at the day of closing, you're out of luck too. Yeah. And that's a horrible feeling when you're watching a storm uh, that looks like it's headed in your direction and you don't have proper coverage. Um, getting the flood elevation certificate, that's important also. Definitely. And I would recommend to people, um, you could make getting a, a certificate a condition of sale, um, just like you would a home inspection, have a surveyor go out there and survey your lowest floor that you're going to live on and get and he could do your elevation certificate you'd be paying for it but for a thousand fifteen hundred bucks you can get a more accurate understanding of what your risk is and what your premium would be now i kind of went past it because i th I thought we briefly touched on it but i want to bring it up again knowing the past history of a property if i'm buying your house and you're just, you know, it, it's not necessarily on your disclosure papers. How do I find out if your house is flooded before, other than asking? Well, you can ask. In our state, um, it hasn't fully gone into effect, but they're supposed to put it out on a form. Um, you know, and different states will have different forms and people will sign off on it. Um, but I think a lot of this accuracy is going to be subject to case law. At the end of the day, if you think somebody lied to you, you you're going to have to prove they lied to you. Well, we met a woman when we were filming uh, for Built to Last Buyer Beware. We were over in St. Pete. We're a neighborhood over there. 800 houses flooded during Hurricane Adalia. And we met this one young lady who did not want to go on camera. And so, you know, I respect that, although it would have been a great interview. Um, she bought her house and she found out after this flood that it had flooded previously when it flooded previously, that owner was told to change the front door and upgrade certain things. They didn't do it, dumped the house to her, and now she has to do it. Have you heard of that kind of stuff? I haven't really heard about changing the front door so much, but when I worked for the state, I would get people calling me up and they'd be a realtor saying, hey, my client wants to buy this house, but I understand that the local government is making me elevate the house before my buyer goes in and does all these kitchen upgrades and things like that. And I'm like, yeah, well, they're probably considered substantially damaged and you're going to have to elevate the house. And that elevation or that uh, determination, once it's made, is final. You're substantially damaged. You got to substantially improve the house before you pull another building code um, permit. You're, it's also going to have to include elevation. And, and ideally... What should happen is maybe you go to the town, you find out if they have a substantial improvement or or damage determination on the house, and you use that as leverage and and undercut the house, um, the value of the house, so that you can afford to elevate the house. Th these things should be done at sale. Um, yeah, should, that's it, it's doable, but it's expensive to elevate a house. It is, but you know, up in the Northeast here, we had failing septic systems, and when the septic systems fail, um, people know it. It's a it's a fact. Things are not up to the code, and as a condition of sale, um, the buyer will do it, or the or they're sold as is, and the and the seller changes the septic system around. And those are not cheap. They're probably like forty fifty thousand dollars. Yeah, as a buyer, you don't want to get somebody kicking the can down the road. So it's your problem. I mean, that you can end up with a lot of a lot of expenses. You say we need better mapping. That seems like it's going to be a tough one. I mean, if they're so far behind, how do we uh, how do we get better maps? 
Well, I think you need better maps for a lot of reasons, public safety, roadways, where you park your car, all of that. And, and it's out there. But I think we really need to go to our legislators and say, enough with giving planning money, you need to give us mapping money. And we need to see modern, upgraded, three-dimensional mapping that shows depth, water depth, and can look at it over a variety of different rainstorms and events. Yeah, you would think that would be doable with all the technology that we have to Oh, it's date. doable. It's doable. It just isn't invested in. Now, you brought up something else that I honestly can say I've never thought of, even though I've heard I've heard stories or seen stories about it. And that's we're always talking about elevating things. But people buy properties that are below flood grade, and it's led to some tragic circumstances. People have lost their lives. Um, so is the disclosures are the, are disclosures different about things that are below grade? Basements. So Ida hit New York, New Jersey um, a couple of years ago and 15 people died. And there are, there are videos of basements collapsing. If you're going to rent something that's below grade in a flood zone, a known flood zone, you should be aware of it. There should be disclosure of that. Um, I, I had one construction official tell me that a basement, which had blown out twice in the last five years, but it's, the house is worth so much money, it's not being elevated and the basement's not being filled. But the lady was down in the basement and the basement collapsed and she was trying to get out and her husband and her son are upstairs trying to claw through the floor with a claw hammer to get her out through the floor. She's trying to breathe. It was horrible, uh, absolutely horrible. The danger of a basement in a flood zone, when those things fail, the water comes in fast and violently. Aren't there, are there local warnings for things like that? Because I know we're told when there's mandatory evacuations, do people just get caught off guard with that? How do how do people end up in a basement at a time of potential flooding? They're probably trying to save whatever's stored down there. And yeah. and your possessions are not worth it. Um and that's a sad thing. That is that that is extremely sad. So, uh real-time roadway vulnerability tools. They always hear turn around don't drown. There's always people in a storm that try to drive through something, but sometimes it might not be a major storm. There might just be water on the roadway for something. How, how do we improve this? Because a lot of people lose their lives with this. Well, people have to keep in mind, six inches, your car is going to, your car is either going to um, flood or it's going to stall out. If it's a car, a foot, your car is going to float. Two feet, your car, your SUV, your truck, they're gonna, they're gonna wash away. I mean, so we're talking depth and depth maps. Um, within about three miles of my house in the last two years, 10 people have died. That big event in July where a family was washed away is not very far from here. In a watershed that wasn't very big, that got a torrential rainstorm and it hit. The emergency responders, they were very unprepared. But if you dump a whole bunch of rain in a very small watershed and you have culverts next to the road and the culverts overflow, it doesn't take much in the way of water at a current to, to wash things and people away. What this new mapping, which is called base level engineering can do is it looks at the topography that's put together by a, a LIDAR technology 
um, laser technology. And you can run flood models. Engineers can say, okay, here's where the bridges are, the culverts are. We're going to model this and figure out how deep the water's going and how fast the water's going. And I believe I read that FEMA was funding this in Kentucky in these very narrow watersheds to figure out what happens when you get a cloud burst. And I'm talking an intense, short duration rainstorm. Because if you can model that in an area that has this base level engineering technology, you know in advance where to close your roads. You can make people stay put. You can make them not try to drive away from a high area. You know, just having these signals go out over your phones where your phones start beeping flash flood warning, people need more directed knowledge. Yeah, I mean that, and, and I think we've gotten to the point where a, a lot of times we just ignore it because we just go, ah, it's just one of those warnings, but it's not going to affect me. And um, it can lead to deadly consequences. If FEMA has this type of mapping technology, why aren't they using it more? Well, it costs money. It requires an investment. It's um, It takes leadership. It takes people saying this is important and it needs to be done. And you need to make an investment. This is a whole level of technology greater than what they've done since the mid-70s. But they seem to put a lot of money into planning. And the problem with planning is you can make a, a planning requirement or a zoning requirement, but you got to back it up with science. And this is the science that allows that. And it's not just for how deep the flooding is. It's also for water quality or for stormwater modeling. You know, if you're going to put a big building in somewhere, it'll tell you where's that water going to go. Um, now, I'm not one of those people that likes the federal government telling me really much of anything, but <laughs> it seems like with disclosure laws, that's kind of a no-brainer. Why can't that be a national thing? I mean, there's certain things that are national. Um, and for something like that, that's such a life or death thing, why should a local government be able to be sloppy and not do it when it, it, could, it could be done just on a national basis? Well, I think disclosure itself is a, is a different story. The mapping, the mapping's got to be a federal thing. People don't have the money or the expertise or the contracting for that. But as far as the disclosure, FEMA really can't tell you what to do um, at the local level. FEMA does not control land use. And the only reason why the National Flood Insurance requires towns to adopt ordinance um, ordinances that have land use management is it, in it is because of a concept called cooperative federalism. Basically, I'll give you the money, I'll cover your insurance losses, but you got to do floodplain management in return. So, so that's the cooperative federalism side, but the, the 10th Amendment says, hey, we don't control land use, that's the states. So that's why all these flood disclosure laws are done by states. You're going to have 50 different ones. Um, and you're not going to get down to the real meat and potatoes of how do you deal with climate change, increasing precipitation, and um, how deep is the flooding? How fast is the water going to go by my house? You're not going to get any of that with these laws. And you're uh, not yeah. even going to get disclosure of insurance very well through these laws either. Yeah, a, lot of this, a lot of this stuff goes way over my head. Uh, you said, why should flood disclosure include substantial damage and substantial improvement language? What does that mean? Well, in these local ordinances, they say if if your property is damaged more than 50% or you improve your property more than 
you've hit the tipping point where you need to elevate your house or retrofit your house. And, you know, these, these homeowners are going to buy this property and they're not going to know um, that that's even a thing. That's not even in a disclosure law and it's in most people's ordinances. So what do we do about this? You include as a statement saying your property is subject to substantial damage and substantial improvement requirements. If you are in a municipality that has adopted a floodplain ordinance, you just keep it real simple. People are shocked and they're like, how can the government make, tell me what to do with my property? Well, the government can, you know, yeah, especially if you want them insurance. to help pay for it. Yeah. 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 Could always it's, not take the money. That's not really it's, a solution. It's it's a it's a fraud thing. I mean, you know, when some of these towns in in Tennessee were not in the flood insurance program until they got hit with these torrential um, storms, and they were so desperate that FEMA said, "Okay, we know you aren't in the national flood insurance program. We'll give you six months to adopt an ordinance, and then we'll cover all your costs." So there's like no penalty for these towns, and they end up joining later. Yeah, that's tough because who are you really punishing? I mean, yeah, you could punish the town, but it's the people in the town. It's always us that end up paying for uh, somebody else's negligence, it seems, or somebody else not doing their job. Well, I get where people go with that. They're like, oh, one more regulation um, that we'd have to enforce. And I, I get where they go with it. But at the same time, this is happening in places that never happened before. Where there's never say, been development before. You say floodplain administration people or floodplain administration is never a popular thing. Is that because we just don't know how important it is? Well, I think it's because after an event, you got to go to people that are devastated to say, yeah, I know you want to rebuild and get in as fast as you can, but you've had so much damage. You now have to elevate your house above the base flood elevation. And that's going to cost a lot of money. And insurance is going to cover it all. And even FEMA's subsidy for that is only only thirty thousand, which doesn't cost the cost of elevating. So yeah, they're not popular people. Although I did have several people tell me when we were doing interviews that a good thing when you're moving into a new community and you're looking for property is to call the local floodplain manager because these people will talk to them and give them what could be really good advice. Absolutely. But I, I will also tell you, working for the state. I've also gone to towns in sort of like an enforcement mode saying, hey, who's your floodplain administrator? And they're like, I don't know. I said, let's see your ordinance. And your ordinance will say who it is. Usually it's a construction official. The guy's like, I don't do that. I actually heard that from somebody. I don't do that. It's not my job. It's not my responsibility. So, I mean, some towns are good about it and some towns are not good about it. So maybe if the town's not good about it, that might not be the place to live. Hard to know. It's hard to know. Well, I, I think knowing that we we know what kind of damage occurs and what kind of problems there are, that if you don't feel you're going to get any um, local support, I, I think it takes a risky proposition and makes it even more risky. Yeah, yeah. Generally, the towns that are better about this are the ones that are in the community rating system, which gives discounts because they have to be um, very diligent about what they do and about trying to prevent flooding in the future. Now, you said that people who want to put in 
new kitchens, baths, windows, siding, all those things. Um, so when they go to do that, that's when they find out, wow, if you're going to spend that money, that house has to go up higher. Yeah. 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 So is, is there a way you could ask that question in the looking for the house process by, so that's where your investigation comes in and you find out what's been done up to the point where you would be buying? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Go talk to the floodplain administrator because some of these ordinances have what's called cumulative and they look at how much in the way of improvements or damage has happened over the last 10 years. Um, and then they'll tell you, they'll keep an accounting of how much work has been done. Some people go up to like 49% of the value of the improvements and stop. And so people come in and they're like, eh, I really don't like that kitchen. I want to rip it out. They go in for a permit. And that's when they find out. Now, is there a time period where that then the meter starts over or is that for the life of the property? It, it depends on how your ordinance is written in the town. So I think the other thing people should do is go read your go read your flooding ordinance and see what isn't 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 allowed. Yeah, I bet you most people are going to say, I'm not going to do that. I wouldn't understand that. Mo most people have never read their insurance policy. Now, house flippers True. do work. And they don't always get permits. And then yeah. you buy the house and then you want to do something and there's no permit. So that's another thing people need to do their due diligence on when they're buying a house is to, to ask for that, to see what was permitted and what wasn't. Absolutely. I would I would definitely go and ask. Sometimes the floodplain administrator catches these people doing this work without permits and then gives them a stop work order. Um, but other times, um, sometimes it doesn't require a construction of permits. So you know, nobody's really looked at it, but people will say, well, I know you did the roofing and siding and now you want to do the kitchen. Well, that, that hits you over, over the amount. So after a disaster, do, does permitting sometimes get a little lax? So those, all those contractors that come in from out of town end up fixing things, but they are not getting permits. That could possibly happen. Yeah. Um, I think FEMA's tried to combat that a bit by offering the towns get um, post-disaster money um, for, in a declared disaster so they can get some extra help in. Um, they didn't do that for years and years and they're doing it now. Um, so that's been a helpful thing. And one of your other questions is, why is it that most flood disclosure laws don't require NFIP flood insurance estimates? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if you're going to have a risk rating system that goes around the whole country and tells you you know, you can punch it into a system and, and get an answer, you know, for regular insurance. Why can't you do that for the for the federal government? Um, it's not a thing. And so when they put out their guidance document, they never said, oh, maybe you should get an estimate of this. Um, but what I would tell people, whether or not your flood disclosure law says that, ask the seller to get one for you. Find out what you're dealing with. Yeah, I think we need to make sellers do a lot more things that uh, that could avoid a lot of problems. Um, how do we go about enacting better disclosure laws? If you're in a community where it's not very good, I mean, getting government to do anything seems like hurting cats. You know, you don't you don't see significant change happen very often. Any advice how people can make that happen? Well, people like me. Um work with the uh, New Jersey Association of Floodplain Management. They go on podcasts like this. Um, they just increase the general awareness 
But I think really what's going to happen is you're going to get several iterations of these flood disclosure laws. Um, people are going to say, hey, wait a minute, I bought this house. I didn't know it was substantially damaged. Why is that not in there? You know, or I bought this house and the and these people lied. Why are you not, you know, I have to sue people. Why can't you put some teeth behind this? Um, you know, I think I think the other thing that's, that's kind of not talked about is you should talk to your floodplain administrator. Um, and I think people are going to go do that. And I think they're going to use the floodplain administrator to say, hey, I was lied to or this, pe this person should have known. Um, but I think it's going to end up being grassroots up. Um, I, you know, I, I really, I really also think that people are going to, consumers are going to have to ask the feds to change the privacy laws around, around flood insurance policies. And, and here's why the NFIP is $20.5 billion in debt to the federal treasury. We are paying $1.7 million in interest a day for this subsidized insurance policy. And that's everybody, which comes out to $2 a year um, per person that we're paying for this insurance program. And the insurance program isn't insuring people, it's not healthcare, it's insuring properties. So at some point we need to drop the mask. It's not really helping anybody and, and let the chips fall where they may because the property can't be moved. It's gonna have the risk it's gonna have and just be clear about it. Okay, tell me if this is a completely stupid idea. Wouldn't it be great if houses had like their own Wikipedia page where the history <laughs> could be recorded by people? I know that house flooded. I know this house had a fire. I know this house. Just a way that when you're looking on Zillow or Realtor.com or any of those sites, that it's more than just eye candy, but it's actual information that would help us make a, a smart purchase. Well, there is, I think Realtor is doing it. Zillow is not, but Realtor will at least tell you what zone you're in and they'll give you a risk from one to 10. I look at them and I'm not so like thrilled with them, but it's an attempt and it's an attempt done privately using um, companies that do a lot of in insurance risk modeling um, that FEMA also uses, but doesn't make public. So yeah, there, there's better ways out there. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. So, I mean, it, it could also be you could have crummy neighbors that just want to tag your house as being <laughs> being garbage just to punish you. It's it's not. It's really kind of misleading, especially along the coast, because depending where the eye of a hurricane hits, you may get a lot of flooding. You may not get much, you know. And and that's the that's the problem. Like you're relying on a neighbor talking about a hurricane that didn't hit that hit like 50 miles south of you on the coast. And it affect you, but the next hurricane, you know, may be a dead hit, dead on hit, and it may, and they're all different. They have surge or rainfall, or they have surge and rainfall. So you can't really go by that on the coast. In riverine areas, it's a little more accurate, um, but not in not along the coasts. It sounds like transparency is really the big thing here. It's like we need more information and. If it, we get more information on things that that are probably insignificant purchases, you know, if you're just if you're buying toys from the on next door, you're buying something. People might ask more questions than they will on that five hundred thousand dollar house they're buying. It's hard. It's hard to say. I think I think people are going to look at what's easiest, and and we need we need simpler 
um, tools that are more informative. We live in a three-dimensional world. We need to know how deep flooding is going to be or how deep storm surge is going to be and make our make our decisions accordingly. Now, when I was talking to you at this event, I, I got the feeling, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, you, you seemed a little frustrated by the system in that it is, you know, sometimes you're banging your head against the wall. So how do we turn that around? How can we make this, how can we make this better? Well, I think, I think people need to be consumers and, and they need to be telling their legislators that, Hey, we need better information and we're not getting enough information. And the, the people that, that you interview, that is a big part of this. It's the human stories to say, here's how I'm impacted by it. You know, I, you know, as far as the roadway deaths, my neighbor's a fireman. He went out during Henri when it hit up here and he came back 40 minutes later. Why? Because the person they were talking to on the phone, when the, by the time they got out to where this person was, the car had floated and flipped and they could no longer get a signal. He came home. You know, that that's the kind of stuff in this day and age we shouldn't, you know, it has a very big impact. Um, yeah, and we tell the human stories, and we hear a lot. If you if you don't evacuate right when they tell you, leaving at the last second. I mean, we talked to a guy who in this just this neighborhood that flooded. He was walking through, holding his two dogs, through like swimming through his neighborhood, feeling jolts of electricity from the utility poles and everything. And it sounded awful. When you wait till the last second to to get out, all bets are off. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tragic. Um, people dying in basements, people dying in roadways, people dying in in manufactured homes that are not gonna that are not gonna handle, you know, living in a hollow in in Kentucky or being on being on Captiva Island or Sanibel yeah. Island. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sanibel was unbelievable. We were just down there and. and um... It's just different now forever. I mean, I, I, I think it's going to take a long time. And, and the path back for some of the people we've talked to, some people never recover from these disasters, do they? No, no. And I would say that people in manufactured homes have the worst of it because they're not um, considered houses. They're considered cars for insurance purposes. And FEMA does their best to try to work three different ways of trying to give them the most money. Um, to get them relocated or someplace else. Um, but it's it's affordable housing. But once you get flooded, it's it's unaffordable to come back. Yeah, that's 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 just tragic. So if you had to give some uh, a takeaway, a bit of advice on the dismount here, what's the main thing people should do when they're going to buy a house? Um, cause we, I don't want to say going to sell a house cause you already, if, if, if it's too late to fix it, but if you're going to buy a property, what's the number one thing people should do? Know whether you're in or out of a flood zone, hundred year, 500 year, and then go inland <laughs> or go as high as you can go. <laughs> that seems to be a, a, a common theme in that, you know, we went to this place called Babcock Ranch, which was down where the hurricane hit when when um ian hit but it's at 35 feet elevation nowhere near the water and they had no flooding and they built in a way that they had almost no damage so it's great to live right on the beach but when you see people lose everything maybe living 45 minutes inland is is a smart choice 
Well, I would always tell people during the pandemic when I worked from home, I'm like, I'm living 60 feet above the river and I'm looking at it now. And why am why why do I subsidize insurance um, for people that don't want to elevate their houses and and lower the risk? You know, I would talk to floodplain administrators that would complain about it. I'm like, understand. You know, this is this is a serious thing. I mean, hey, it touched me when I was a little kid. We had a rental house. It got hit in Hurricane Agnes 50 years ago. The house needed to be put back up on its foundation. It was never elevated. Um, it's flooded a couple of times since. It's now commercial property. But my dad spent an entire summer rehabbing the house. And I was a little kid and I was bored. But I remember when you smell the combination of diesel fuel, sewage, mildew, and rot in a house, and you have to come back from that, that's an everyday reminder of it. Um, and, and unless you've gone through it, it, it's hard to say, I want to go through this again. Um, yeah, people really need to hear the stories of, uh, of victims and what they go through because you never want to be in that position, you know, it, to, to have to deal with flooding, to have to deal with your house getting destroyed. And if you are struggling to begin with, if your financial means aren't great, that's just, that's just life altering. And, you know, I'm not saying, hey, everybody's got to evacuate the coast. I, I'm just saying if if you want to live there, you got to you got to spend the money and you can't build to the lowest building standard possible by law, which is what you're building to. Um, I'm going to put a plug in for your last house standing, but you got to be able to afford commercial construction, basically, to live in these areas. And I'm not saying don't do it. And I'm not saying I will never visit a coastal area because I do. Um, but, you know, understand that, that the shore is going to look very different or the ocean or the beach and other people call it in other parts of the country. It's going to look very different. It's going to be built differently and we're still going to have fun. We're still going to enjoy it. Um, but it is going to be for people to have more means to be able to have resilient buildings and survive. Yeah. And there's a big difference between visiting it or owning property there. Because when you visit it, you can go home at the end of the day. When you when you own the property, those people are going to be living a nightmare for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Rebecca, I'm so glad we finally got to, to get you on the podcast. I, was, uh, we both had some scheduling challenges. And uh, um, thank you very much. This is great advice. And I think people are going to get a lot of great information from you. Thank you. I hope it helps people. I really do. Um, it's a devastating. Flooding is devastating. And I'm glad you're shining a light on on people's stories because that the stories are really what makes it real and makes it it makes a difference. All right, thanks. The best ways to reach out to Rebecca are in the show notes. If you have a story about your home, good or bad, I'd love for you to share it with me. There's a contact form in the show notes. Reach out to me, and you might be a guest on an upcoming podcast. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.